As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests, so please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognised the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. First thought was just somebody thrown out a, a dead pig. And then I thought, well, hang on, that's, no, somebody wouldn't throw out a pig like that. 
So then I went back, I started to walk away, turned around and lifted up some another part of the sheet, and as soon as I saw a man's foot, and I thought, well, that's it. So then I walked back up my phone, I rang the police in Darwin. This week's Australian True Crime takes us back to the Northern Territory. The victim, whose remains were found just outside Catherine on the 25th of October 2011 by Daryl Hill, were those of 41-year-old Raffaele Nicifolo, also known as Ray. Ray had lived most of his life in Catherine, which has a population now of roughly 10,000 people. It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone, especially characters as colourful, shall we say, as Ray Nicifolo. At the time of his death, Ray had a string of convictions for violent and gun-related crimes to his name, including the shooting of a man in 1999, which occurred in the main street of town. He'd been in a volatile relationship with a local woman called Bronwyn since 2007. In 2009, she'd taken out an apprehended violence order against him, and the couple finally broke up in September 2011. At that point, Ray started sending Bronwyn threatening text messages regarding a laundromat they'd been running together. One message read, Today could be the day you lose someone close to you, which Bronwyn took as a threat to the life of her son, Christopher. The following day, Ray turned up at the laundromat in person, threatening to rape and murder Christopher. This is how Christopher later described that scene in the Darwin Supreme Court. He called me a, a poofter, a faggot, other names. Shortly after that, he started saying about how he fucked my mother and made her bleed. But he, he fucked her up the ass and made her squeal. I was very scared. Four days after the confrontation at the laundromat, Ray Nicifolo was dead. And very soon after that, Bronwyn, her son Christopher Mileshko, and two of his close friends, Darren Halfpenny and Zach Grieve, were arrested by Northern Territory Police and charged with the killing. In a case that's emotionally charged for many reasons, and that caused deep divisions in the town of Catherine, Zach Greaves' involvement has always been particularly controversial because although he admits he knew that something terrible was going to happen to Ray Nichiforo that night, even the judge presiding is on record as saying Zach wasn't there and received an unjust sentence for his involvement. Journalist Dan Box has been reporting on crime for decades and was unexpectedly drawn into this story and into this family on a very personal level and he joins us to talk about his new book, The Man Who Wasn't There, and the extraordinary man who's emerged in Zach Grieve. When I was writing this book, I started off by doing a timeline. So this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. That was over 80,000 words. So it was the length of a book on its own before I even wrote the book. And I remember getting to the end of the timeline and thinking, so I've just written a whole book and now I've got to start the real one. Yeah, you've virtually written a PhD on the context yeah. before you yeah. started the book. But that was the thing with the timeline. You keep going back and back and back. Like, where do you actually begin this story? And this is, this is the thing that I kind of love and I kind of hate about true crime reporting, because essentially what I do is, is journalism. 
is is complicated. Like real people's lives are so much more complicated than fictional characters. And I love that about them because I love these stories are always more real and more powerful than anything you read in fiction, but also they're more complicated. People's lives are the product of the things that happened first. So in this case, we're talking about a murder that was commissioned by a woman who was herself the victim of some pretty extreme domestic violence, coercive control by the man who would become the murder victim. But you trace that back to, so maybe the moment that couple got together is the start of the story of his death. Or do you go back further to the earlier events in her life that, like a lot of people who, who suffer some form of sexual abuse or, or are the victims of abuse, it's not the first time they've suffered something in the past. And there's things in their lives that have maybe left them vulnerable to the predators who, who come into their lives later. Or to go back to his life. Yeah, to go exactly. back to, you know, the beginning of his life and the environment in which he was born and lived and the community as well, you know, the community that we all live with in, in Australia that sees a woman killed in, I think this year it's been every five days we've seen a woman murdered in Australia. So, yeah, we, we've got a violence problem in Australia, certainly. But just on that, so you're talking about his life. So this is the guy who would become the murder victim. His life, what led him to become the man he did, and frankly, I almost feel bad saying this because he was murdered and he was murdered in a horrendous way. No one deserves to die like that. Although there were people in the town we're talking about who, when I said that, challenged it and said, actually, no, some people do deserve to die like that. But this guy, he wasn't a very sympathetic victim. Like He wasn't a kind man, or at least he wasn't kind to everyone. He certainly wasn't kind to his partner, his fiancée. And so how did he become that man? What you look at his childhood, you look at his parents' lives, and then you like you look at the place where all this happened, which is Catherine in the Northern Territory, a small, isolated town. It's it's essentially the crossroad of two desert highways. That man's family were the product of, of living there. And that environment shaped them, and it's a harsh, unforgiving, hot, often pretty brutal environment. So he becomes a product of that environment and then he almost personifies it and then he mistreats his fiancée. She, and I'm not defending this, and she's not defending it now, I've spoken to it plenty since, she decides to have him killed. So you can trace this whole story back, this murder, which ends up with the stuff the book's about, almost back to the place itself, which is Catherine in the middle of pretty much nowhere in the Northern Territory. That's where it starts. Catherine's a very, I'm going to say a special place because I love Catherine and I love the territory, but it's a place that a lot of Australians would find as strange and inhospitable as just about anywhere in the world, I'm going to say. Do you remember the first time you went to Catherine? Yeah, vividly because it is strange and inhospitable. Not so much the town. I'm with you. I love the town. Like I think I had the best cup of coffee I've had in my life in <laughs> Catherine. That's great. Which kind of defies the expectation because like you said, Getting to Catherine is bleak. Like you drive out of Darwin, the radio on your car just fades into nothing. <laughs> like a horror movie. It's like a horror movie. And then you've just got hours of silence. And on either side is just flat to the horizon and red. And on, you can just see fires every so often. And you realize that up here, they don't put the fires out. They just leave them to burn. 
And then if you get out of your car, the heat hits you and you can barely take a couple of steps because it is so hard. First time we drove there, like I vividly remember this and it ended up in the book and it ended up being the front cover of the book. There was a bushfire that had just completely crossed the road. So we just ground to a halt. And being from the South, being from Sydney, and obviously I'm British as well, just kind of sat there waiting for someone to come and put it out, but that wasn't going to happen. And as we were sitting there, we were watching, there was loads of birds. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of birds of prey. And we were watching them. And because we were sitting there for a while, we worked out that they were hunting, but they were using the fire. So they were picking up sticks that were on fire, flying up, dropping the sticks to spread the fire, which would force all the like the rodents and the little snakes and lizards out onto the road. Wow. And then they were sweeping down and the road became a killing zone. And it was the first time I've seen anything like that. They were deliberately hunting with fire. When you say that, you remind me of my overwhelming feeling there and in the communities around Catherine was finally understanding what Aboriginal people mean when they say that they are part of the land. All the things we've been talking about, ah, it's scary, it's hot, it's red, ah, there's fires. All of those things are just part of them and they use all of those things and, and they're, they're part of the land, they're part of, they use everything, they're just part yeah, of they're it. Yeah, they're a product of the environment because those are the people who are native to that yeah. land and have lived there for tens of thousands of years. And when you visit with them, you're like, oh, yeah, you guys yeah. are part of the land. I finally get it. And we, you know, as, as white people, obviously, we're not, no. which is why when we step outside the car, we're like, oh, it's very hot, we better go back inside. When you get to Catherine, you drive in and you see a whole bunch of, of Aboriginal people sitting often in the median strips or on the pavements in the shade. And then you see a whole bunch of white people who are getting in and out of cars or going in and out of the shops and are just walking straight past. And it's immediately obvious there's two very distinct populations. And one has got money and one has not got a lot of money. And then as you explore Catherine a bit, you realize that like down by the riverbanks, there's almost almost kind of tumble down houses. I don't quite know what to call them. Humpies is what they call them. Humpies. Yeah. Okay. Humpies. To my eye, I think, well, there's two communities and one community is part of the land and the other community is fighting against it. One community is sitting in the park in their family group, living their life, and another communities in their air-conditioned car running into the air-conditioned cafe. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But there's a, real, there's a real division between them, isn't it? It's really stark. But in your story, the story you're telling, there's the other divide, which is that, that Aboriginal people still face in Australia, which is our legal system, is still very, very difficult for them to live within, and it's still really designed very much apart from Aboriginal culture. Well, that's definitely true. So the guy at the centre of the story I tell in this book is a guy called Zach Greve. So he's got Aboriginal mum, she's Jingly Mudbara, and his dad's white. He's from both cultures. And I've actually talked to him about this. I said, you know, do you identify as one or the other? And he said, it depends who I'm talking to, which I, cannot, I hadn't thought of that as a response. He got tripped up in this legal system. I say tripped up. He was thrown in jail for his entire life, which is more than being tripped up for a murder that even the judge said he didn't physically commit. I was talking to his mum about your point about the, how the legal system treats these two peoples differently. 
And she said to me, she said that the Northern Territory made money from the federal government, depending on how many people it has in prison. So essentially it gets more money if it's got more people in prison. The vast majority of the people in prison in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal, despite the fact that the majority of the people who live in the Territory are white. So there's a massive disproportion. And Zach's mum, Glenis, said to me, essentially, they see us as a money-making enterprise. They throw us in prison. They make money off our back. She said, we are enterprise to these people. Now, I don't think that's necessarily accurate, strictly accurate. And certainly everyone I spoke to in the Northern Territory government said that was not the case. But to be honest, Glennis's explanation makes about as much sense as any other explanation I've heard for what is going on up there, because it is completely out of whack. The prison population is growing at a huge rate. Most of the people in jail are Aboriginal. And it's having a, a hugely detrimental effect on all those people's lives. I say it's not having a hugely detrimental effect. It's completely stuffing these people's lives. And the way the laws are working there are just bent out of shape. And Zach's a prime example of that. Because he was involved in the murder of this man who mistreated his fiancée. Inasmuch as he agreed to take part in it. He was one of three people who agreed to take part in it. He then pulled out. He chickened out on his version of events. He couldn't go through with it, but he didn't do anything to stop it. Now, in the Northern Territory, that still means you're guilty of murder because the way the law was written there is different. In New South Wales, in Victoria, if you agree to take part in a murder, then you pull out. And I've covered cases, there's a reporter like this, you might get done with conspiracy to attempt murder, but you wouldn't be found guilty of murder. But Zach was. And then the way the law works in the Northern Territory, Zach, if he's guilty of murder, he has to go down for a life sentence. The law doesn't give the judge any any room to move. And life in the territory means life, as in you will go to jail until you die, with a minimum non-parole period of 20 years. So Zach's 19 when he agrees to take part in this murder and then pulls out. He's then sent to prison for longer than he's been alive. And in his sentencing, the judge says, I don't think you were there. If I could, I'd give you a shorter sentence, but I can't because of the way the law is written. And the judge says, the way the law is written in the territory inevitably creates injustice. Right. The judge has no discretion. What you're explaining to us now is that under the legislative situation there, the judge has no discretion in terms of whether or not to find him guilty of murder or in how to sentence him. This is a 19-year-old standing in front of him who wasn't there. So tell us about the crime. We, we know that Zach agreed and then pulled out, bless him, couldn't actually go through with it, but didn't dob beforehand. So what happened? So the, the plot was that Ray would be killed. And there's a bit of dispute as to whether or not Zach agreed to take part in a killing or just a bashing. Zach's version of this is that he just thought it was going to be a bashing, but having gone through the evidence and I've gone through all of it and I've spoken to a lot of people, I think he wouldn't know. And I've said that to him as well. Like he knew what he was about. Maybe not at the start when he agreed to do it, but by the end, he knew what he was about. And then these three guys, Zach and Darren and Chris, they waited for, for Ray to turn up in his flat. They waited a few nights and he didn't. And then the last night he was there and they got in a van, threw their weapons in the van. And their weapons are crude, like a shifting spanner, a metal pipe and a baseball bat. 
And the plan was basically to go in there, knock him out, take him out of town. And then the plan was to dispose of his body down a sinkhole. So, you know, Catherine, you just get these, these basically just almost like mine shafts just open up into the ground. They were going to dispose of him like that and then no one would find him, which is something that happens in the territory. You think of Peter Falconio, the Bradley Murdoch murder, that body's never been found. You can lose a body in the territory. But something went wrong. First of all, Zach, by his account and by Chris's account, pulls out. He came outside and he told me he couldn't help me anymore. I asked him if he was sure that he couldn't do it. And he told me that that he just couldn't help kill someone. I told him that I understood and I dropped Zach off at his house. Interestingly, Darren, the third person there, insists that Zach was there. So it's complicated. And and when the police are talking to Darren, you can see that they're convinced by his story, or they at least run with his story. Whereas Chris and Zach don't talk to them and later in court say that Zach wasn't there. That's complicated by the fact that Darren seems to be a habitual liar. You lied to the police about your part in destroying the evidence, didn't you? Yeah. And you don't care if you lie, do you? It's not that I don't care if I lie. It's just when I lie, it just comes out. Again, he's, he's had a tough life, and there's stuff going on with him that maybe explains why his evidence doesn't quite make sense, but certainly the police knew he'd lied to them repeatedly, but still went with his evidence that Zach was involved. Zach was found guilty almost entirely on the basis of Darren's evidence, because there was no forensic evidence linking Zach to the crime. So, you've got these two versions, Darren's, which I think there's definitely question marks over, and Chris and Zach's, who both said that Zach pulled out and he went home and he went to sleep and he didn't call the cops. You didn't try to stop him? You didn't try to discourage him? No. You didn't say, go to the police, Chris, there are other ways to deal with Ray? No. I just wanted to go home. Chris was my best friend and I couldn't wait for him to take me home. Ray's then killed and he's killed in a horrendous way, like he's beaten to death with a shifting spanner on the floor of his unit. And no, it's, no one should ever die like that. It's appalling. And then his body is taken in Chris's van. And by the accounts of what happened in that van, Chris panicked. Something went wrong. The plan didn't happen. They didn't find the sinkhole. They basically just drove in a mad rush out of town took the, the road out of Catherine that leads to the Catherine Gorge, the big tourist attraction. That's, that road's a dead end. doesn't go anywhere. And about halfway along, they just stop the van, drag Ray's body out, drop it, and basically panic and go, that's it, we're done, we're out of here. And you can, you can almost imagine that. It's funny, I've spoken to homicide detectives about this. Often when people are disposing a body, they do a really bad job of it. Like they don't drag it very far. And you think about it, it's usually done at night. You're usually panicking. You usually just want to get out of there. Mm. And a body's really heavy, like really heavy. They basically trip and drop the body and, and run and leave it. And that's it. That's the end of the plan. And then a couple of days later, the body's discovered and the whole thing starts to unravel from there. I guess the police didn't have far to look if Christopher was the son of the partner. Yeah, so... 
almost first thing you do is you go and find the partner of the victim. You talk to her, you talk to her son, you realize there's a history there because there was different apprehended violence orders taken out against different people. You realize there's something there. You ask Chris who he's with. He says he was with Darren. You speak to Darren and Darren's account is a complete fiction as to what happened that night. And then the police say, well, have you got a phone? And Darren says, yeah. And then the police say, can we have a look at it? And Darren says, yeah. And on Darren's phone, there's a whole bunch of messages, text messages organizing a murder. And from there, they take Darren in. Darren gives up Chris. Darren gives up Zach. And that's it. They, those two in, in custody within days. And one of the things like Zach has asked me more than once is, how long do you think I should have got in prison? And at first I avoided the question because I didn't kind of want to judge Zach. Because we wrote letters to each other for years and years and years. And I avoided the question. And then he started writing me a letter saying, you basically saying, you're avoiding the question. I want an answer now. And I kind of tried to answer and I kind of like went around the houses and I just, for some reason I was bottling it. And eventually, like, and he even in one of his letters, he drew me a diagram of my response, which was like this spiral that started here and then got bigger and bigger and bigger, <laughs> and more confused. And then he said, and your answer ended here. So like, he was calling me out and good on him. Like, honestly, I've been in court as a crime reporter. I've seen people who do things that are comparable to what Zach did, who got four, five, six, maybe seven years. Yeah, okay, you agree to take part in a murder, you shouldn't do that, it's straightforwardly wrong. You don't stop the murder taking place, but you pull out, yeah, you're still guilty of something. But life? Yeah, you and I both know judges in Melbourne, certainly, Yeah. who would have looked very sympathetically on this case. Oh yeah, definitely. Because of all the disadvantages that Zach brings with him. And that goes back to what you were saying about how the, the law or the legal system in this part of the world, being the territory, discriminates against Aboriginal people. It does, but it's bigger than the legal system. It's pretty much everything is, 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 is weighted against or is structured in such a way that you might not have you know, individuals making racist decisions, but the structure of the whole society, housing, education, health, the law, all of these things are just so completely out of whack. And the law is, is, is just a part of that. And Zach brought those disadvantages in his life to the point where he's making this decision. Which, from his perspective, is no doubt a decision, uh, you know, brought about to some degree at least by sh the idea of chivalry. I mean, I'm assuming the court accepted um, the lady who I believe is known as, as Bronwyn. Bronwyn, yeah. The court accepted Bronwyn's account that she had been victimised by, yeah. by the murder yeah, victim yeah. for many years, sexual and violent abuse in her relationship at the hands of this man, Ray Nikiforo. Deep down, I loved him. Were you scared? I was very scared. I came home from work one day to find him cleaning a double-barreled shotgun. He walked into the lounge room, pointed that gun at my face that far away from it, told me to keep my fucking mouth shut or I would see both barrels. I feared that he would hunt me down. He would tell me that he had people all over Australia that would be able to find me if I ever left him. But not just me, my kids as well. He, he, he would threaten them through me. He would also say things like, well, I'm gonna make those boys of yours watch while I deal with you. Then I'm gonna deal with them. 
And so, you know, when you think about this young man, Zach, who he did he have any prior convictions for, for no, violence? No, nothing. Nothing. No, he'd done a bit of drug dealing. It was, he was sold weed. And Zach's co-accused, Darren and Christopher, were they his age? Were they roughly the same age? Yeah, broadly, to within a few years. Zach was a bit younger. But that's the thing. Zach came to this. Like, he was young. He hadn't had a great education. Catherine, the schools weren't probably as good as they are elsewhere. And, and Darren and Chris didn't even finish school. You know, Zach was pretty naive. He smoked a lot of dope as well as selling a bit of it. He's played a lot of video games. You know, his, even his mum said he was green, like he wasn't a mature 19-year-old. So he brings all that background. He'd seen a lot of domestic violence in his life. His best mate, Chris, comes to him and says, my mum is being essentially abused by this man. Will you help me get rid of him? And Zach's response is, yeah, I'll help stop that. Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying it's right, and it's not, because killing people isn't right, but you said it was chivalry. I mean, at the very least, there's an element of compassion in that wrong decision. And the way the law worked meant that the judge wasn't able to say, there's some compassion here, and there's some regret here, and there's some decency in this individual. And also, do we want to stuff this guy's life up? Like one thing I've been thinking a bit about recently is... Everyone who goes to prison, like nine out of 10 of them are going to come out at some point and they're going to end up living next to someone. So who do you want coming out of prison? Someone who spent 20 years in there being punished and basically has come out broken or has come out angry or has come out hateful. Or do you want someone who's come out and is able to take a useful role within society? It's not a popular opinion. I know that. There's a documentary about this case that you can watch on Binge called The Queen and Zach Grieve. It features Dan Box, our guest today, but his new book, The Man Who Wasn't There, has many, many updates on that doco, so you should definitely take in both. There is, of course, a link in the show notes to help you buy your copy. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christopher has since died in jail. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. And that was, this for me, like doing the book was probably the main thing I learned. Like, so the prison they were in wasn't a great prison. They started off in, um, Berrimer and ended up in Holt. So they moved from an old prison to a new one, both in Darwin. And when they moved, all of the things that the prisoners had accumulated, all the things the lifers had accumulated, like CDs and art equipment and books and games, they were told to leave them all behind. So they were taken off them like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of CDs in Chris's case. And Bradley Murdoch, who killed Peter Falconio and was up there, he'd started teaching himself to paint or to draw. And he was told to leave all his art equipment behind and he just had to. And they were told they were going to get this new prisoner interactive learning system at the new prison. They would do all their education and their calls to their families and, and so on and so on. And it never worked. Then years went past, it never worked. And so they'd given up all of these things. And then Zach's education kind of came to a stop. Interactive learning system never worked. And they got bored. They got really bored. And that doesn't sound like a big deal, except it was like crippling boredom. Zach described it as a days of our lives existence, you know, the soap opera, like every, because they'd watch the soaps every day. You just sit down and do the same thing again. And it, it was about this time in the new prison that synthetic cannabis became a big deal. Was, they called it chronic, and it's basically just a bunch of chemicals and has a really nasty effect on you. So it became completely rife in the prison. They were smoking it basically to get out of their minds basically to escape like you could lock them up but mentally at least if they were bonging on with chronic their minds could get out of there but physically it did all kinds of nasty things to them like there was an inquest into chris's death eventually and one of the things that they really majored on was the chronic use and how it would cause people to throw up or cause people to physically freeze so you just see them kind of just stuck or slumped or like it sounds like horrendous stuff but chris we really smoking a lot of it and he and Zach were mates Zach got sent to a different part of the prison Chris was pretty low about that Chris went into his cell one night and the next day he was dead in his cell and long and the short of it was that he smoked most likely smoked a bunch of this chronic on his own in the cell and and it kind of caused him to topple over and maybe freeze and he gone down really hard and hit the corner of the desk like massively hard and then choked on his own vomit and there was no one there to look after him zach would have been his cellmate zach had been moved out to a different part of prison and it kind of goes to this other part of zach i haven't mentioned which is that in prison zach wrote and he wrote fiction 
He wrote science fiction. He wrote entire books, like hand wrote them in his cell, like stacks of paper, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And he created these whole worlds, universes of like characters that he'd populate. And then he, you know, I think he's on like his second book of a trilogy and they're massive books. So he would escape into these books. He'd escape into his own imagination. And I've, I've had the conversation with him. I'm like, do you think that got you through prison? He was like, hundred percent. Like, I could pass the time by escaping. Again, you can lock me up physically, but you can't lock up my imagination. Whereas Chris didn't. Chris didn't have anything. Chris smoked a lot of chronic, and he smoked chronic partly to deal with the boredom of being there. And in the end, it was, it was that that killed him. For that to be the result of being sent to prison and the state supposedly looking after you is, is pretty damning. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly. I know it's a ridiculously naive thing to say, but to die of drug abuse essentially in an Australian prison is ridiculous. And and lack of supervision. That's awful. And, you know, that was, Zach and Chris were best mates. Zach lost his best mate as a result of that. Bronwyn, who paid for Ray's murder to take place, has lost her son. She's still living? Yeah, yeah, she's out of prison now. Oh, she so. went to prison as well, of course. Yeah. She was jailed for a few years, yeah. Bronwyn was found guilty of manslaughter, essentially in recognition of her mental state at the time. The kind of the judge's findings there were she'd suffered such a level of abuse that her mind wasn't working as clearly as it should have been. She wasn't in control of her own thoughts. That's fascinating. So he had discretion where Bronwyn's sentence was concerned. Yeah. And because she went down for manslaughter, she only went down for a few years. But again, it's a life sentence. Like she lost her son. Yeah, and absolutely. She, she massively lives with the guilt of what she did in commissioning Ray's murder and ending up with Darren in prison for life. Zach, only just out of prison, and her son didn't make it out of prison at all. So, And the lifetime of abuse she lived before that. Yeah. Before it all happened. So, yeah, Darren Halfpenny still in prison and, and for life. Yeah, minimum 20 years non parole. So. He's not going to get out for a long time. Prison in the Northern Territory, that's pretty tough. That is tough. Like, there's fights, there's rapes, there's a lot of drugs. There's everything you read about when you read about how bad prison is. But this is the kind of the triumph of Zach's story. So how did he come out? How, how is he? Well, he only came out a few weeks ago. Like, bizarrely, and by, by chance, Zach pretty much got released from prison the week that the book was released, oh, God. which was, there was no planning in that at all. But so I got a text message from him on the day he was released because I knew it was coming. And I got a text message from him saying, I'm having lunch with my dad and my sister. And I'll be honest, there was a part of me that never believed that was going to happen. Like I knew technically on paper it was going to happen, but until I got that message kind of emotionally, I hadn't let myself think it might. Because Zach and I have grown pretty in a funny, strange way, kind of close. And that happened, and then I've spoken to him a couple of times now, and he's come out good. He's come out resilient. He's come out mature. He's come out probably better educated, sadly, than when he went in. And he's come out with a sense of optimism and determination to do the right thing. Life's going to be tough. Like, how do you pick up a life when you spend not all, not most of it, but a, a long chunk of it in jail. 
He was in, he did 12 years in the end. And he's still on parole. And I didn't really think about what parole means, but parole means that if he does anything wrong, even like a really minor offence, he goes back to jail for the rest of his life because that's the rest of his sentence. So he's still got an ankle bracelet. He was telling me the other day, he's going to have that one for six months minimum. He's got a conviction. He's a convicted murderer. And he's got to try and build a life on that basis. Like He said he spent four hours on the phone to the tax office trying to convince them that the reason he hadn't filed a tax return for 12 years was because he was in jail and he wasn't trying to defraud them. And he said they just weren't having it until he said, look, Google my name. And they did. And they went, oh, yeah, all right. Because there's obviously been news reporting about him. You know, all the paperwork, your life, driving license, learning to drive, you know, registering to vote, registering for tax, all of that. He's got to do all of that at once. Is it the first time he's held a smartphone? Yeah. All that stuff? That always blows my all mind when blokes yeah, say, yeah, yeah. I held a smartphone and I, I couldn't believe it, you know? But like probably the price of a beer has gone up by, oh. I don't know, maybe three times over. Yeah. Um, to his credit, he said he's not drinking. That's it. He's done. And he's not taking any drugs. It's a smart choice because if when you've got that hanging over your head, like you could so easily make a mistake that could turn into something huge. Easy. And if you make one mistake for the rest of your life, you go back to prison for the rest of your life. God. Like that's a thing to live with. But. He's doing really well. I think things will be tough and then hopefully they'll get better. But he's optimistic and he's smiling and he's laughing. And, and yeah, he does feel a genuine sense of regret and shame for what he did, but he's not going to let it define him. He seems to have a lot of support in terms of the, the community. Is that fair to say? That's what I'm sensing through media reports over the years. But is that real? He's got a lot of support from his family. Yeah. Like, you know, families are complicated. Every family is complicated. He has a genuinely impressive family. I've met all of his immediate family, and they're all really impressive people. The community in Catherine is kind of splintered. Like, this is one of the things about... I've got, there's a couple of times in my life I've covered murders in small towns, and it's been similar in both in that what you forget, or maybe you don't realise, is that in a small town, the family of the victim and the family of the suspected killer are going to keep living in that town and sometimes within a few hundred meters of each other and they're going to bump into each other and their life has to continue. And so I think it was Zach's sister-in-law described it to me as being like the killing kind of opened up like a chasm down the main street of Catherine and there were people on one side and there were people on the other and that took a very long time to start to heal. And also a lot of Zach's mates, the people he was friends with at the time, they've gone for different reasons or they didn't stay in contact. You know, they said they'd write and then they never wrote. And, you know, 12 years have passed and you've got to pick those friendships up if you want to. And another thing Zach said is maybe he shouldn't try and pick all those friendships up because that was the life he was in at the time. But there are definitely other people in the community offered him a lot of support as lawyers several lawyers have been incredible he's been offered a job he's been offered more than one job that's huge that's usually the hardest part I, I think I think that's the game changer for sure like if he can feel that he has got some discipline and I'm not saying the other thing to you I haven't said to him if he's got a structure to his life some discipline and also a sense that he's doing something useful I think that 
hopefully is 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 absolutely cr- critical to the rest of his his life now. So yeah, there's a lot of support. That covered sort of what happened to Zach as a newspaper reporter years ago. And then I came back to, to doing it now because essentially Zach challenged me to, to do it properly. Like I'd covered it as a newspaper report and I thought I kind of fancied that we'd done a good job. And, and then I got a phone call from Zach's dad saying, Zach says you need to grow some balls and defend him. <laughs> and I can remember walking down the street and I was just like, because I thought Zach's dad had called to tell me, well done, like, well done. You've done a great job. You're, 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 the, hero, you're the hero journalist. And Zach uh, got his time in prison reduced and, and everyone's really pleased with you, Dan. Well done. And actually what he called was to say, Zach says, grow some balls and defend him. <laughs> and it, it took me a while to work out that what Zach meant was like, A, toughen up, but B, it's not enough to be the objective journalist, to stand back and say, here are the facts. That's as far as I go. Like Zach said, you've got to pick a side. You've got to choose whether you believe Zach or not. And if you believe Zach, then what are you going to do about it? And it took me a long time to actually kind of grow those balls. That's a really interesting challenge, isn't it? Because as a journalist, it is your job to not take sides, to just say to the rest of us, these are the facts. I've found out as much as I can and I'm presenting you with the facts and it's your job to make up your own mind. But I've struggled with that recently as a result of some of the cases I've covered. So I covered a, uh, an unsolved murder with three kids a few years ago in a little town called Barrowville. And again, got quite close to the people involved on both sides, victims, family. And I spoke to the suspected killer a few times. And I kind of struggled with this idea of standing back because standing back, yeah, I get it. As journalists, we just give you the facts and you, the, the reader or the listener, decide. But it's also a bit of a cop-out because it means we don't have to get emotionally involved and everybody else we're writing about does. And it means we don't have to decide what's right and wrong. You know, as a journalist, if we're all about truth and objectivity, some things are objectively wrong. It's true that this is wrong. And in that case, as a journalist, is it actually right for us to stand back and basically go, that's not our problem? Yeah, exactly. Increasingly, I don't think it is. Like, if we can see that something's wrong, we've got to call it out. And that's what Zach was saying, okay? If you think this is wrong, you've got to call it out. And that was kind of the start of the process that led to the book, which then took years and years, because I basically went back through the whole case again, read every document, every page of transcript, spoke to everybody again, and spoke to other people. To kind of answer the question in my mind was, do I actually think Zach did it or not? Because I hadn't really faced up to that in the past. And so I looked at the whole thing again. And then as in the process of doing that, Zach and I were writing letters to each other. He helped me out with a bunch of stuff that I was going through. And that process to where we are now, today, him out of prison, me on the phone to him, almost like we're mates. Almost like, I mean, he'd probably be furious if I wasn't just saying we are mates, but it still feels a bit weird. Because again, that's that's crossing the journalistic line, isn't it? Where we're not supposed to be friends with the people we're writing about. We're supposed to be aloof and, and objective. But actually, you know, Zach is a mate. But all of that was in that challenge, grow some balls and defend me. So I had to kind of strip back what I do as a reporter and and look at it and look at myself. 
And the funny thing about this book, I've said this a few times, but it's true. I hated writing this book. I wrote a draft of this book and it was really short. So I jumped it. And, and then I wrote another half. So the first one was 80,000 words. So the timeline's 80,000 words. And the first draft's almost 80. Second draft is 40,000 words. And I junked that, but I copied and pasted bits. So I kept some of it. Then I did a third draft. And then I can remember it was about this time last year. I came into the room where I'd been writing this thing. And I sat down and I'm about to send it off to the publisher. And I know in my heart of hearts that it's still quite shit. Two years of, of writing and it's been, I haven't enjoyed writing it. And then I had this kind of inspiration. The reason I've not enjoyed writing this and the reason it's still not very good is that I'm not being honest with myself. I'm expecting Zach to be honest with me and tell me if he did this murder. I'm expecting all these people I've spoken to, to be honest about Zach and about all these other things. And there's no honesty from me in this book because I was standing back. I was being aloof. I was trying to keep myself out of the book. And I said, look, I said to myself, look, if you're asking Zach to be honest, you're going to have to be honest. So I went back to the start of the book and over two weeks, I just wrote through the whole thing and put myself into it, being honest about things, like being honest about why I got into it in the first place, being honest about some of the stuff we do as reporters, which is kind of morally ambiguous. Being honest about how I was feeling at certain times, what was going on in my life, how Zach changed that, because he did. And then being honest about where I ended up in terms of what I thought was Zach now. And so I put all of that honesty in, which was the stuff probably subconsciously I'd been avoiding putting in for the past two years. And as a result, not enjoying the process. And those two weeks, like they were kind of electric, like I just smashed them out. And then I got to the end of that and I sat there and I looked at it and I was like, yeah, now the book works. That's the stuff that's hard to do. Hey, It's really hard to do. It's really hard to do, especially for you to write about yourself. I know journos hate that. Never make yourself part of the story. That's another rule. So what may I ask, I'm fascinated as to how Zach, the man in prison, convicted murderer in the Northern Territory, helped you with issues in your life. That's fascinating. Yeah. And this was the stuff that, that we involved being honest. So after I did the reporting on Zach, we moved. So we were living here. I'm in Sydney. Moved back to the UK where all our family are. Moved to somewhere we'd never lived before. Didn't have any friends. Didn't actually have a job to go to. In retrospect, it was probably a bad decision. It was dark. It was cold. I ended up getting a job that hated. I mean, I really hated it. And it was a four hour commute each day. So two hours there, two hours back. And that meant I've got young kids. That meant I was getting up before them. I was leaving the house before them, coming back after they were in bed. So I never saw my children and I was miserable. And I, I mean, it was, it tipped over beyond being sad to, I was depressed, like, and depression's talked about a lot more now, which is a good thing. I'm quite glad that those people who haven't had it don't know what it's like because it's really hard. Like it's it's like a, a cloak settles on you and you can barely talk and you can barely do anything except just get through what you have to do at best. And in this kind of space, I needed to talk to somebody, but I didn't want to talk to anyone who was near me, partly because we're blokes and we're useless because I didn't have many, if any, real friends where we were living. And my wife and I 
you know, with all that stress, like we weren't great. She delightfully told me I was the shittest version of myself around this time in our relationship. So the person I ended up talking to was Zach because we were writing these letters to each other. And I knew that he was on the far side of the world, locked up in prison. And so I wouldn't have to see his face. If I told him, mate, I'm feeling black for these reasons, and this is what's going on in my life. If I said that to any of the blokes I knew, I'd see their faces and, and maybe they didn't want to talk about it. But Zach, I could write to him and then just send the letter off and it went. But he started writing back and he was nothing but supported. And there was one letter he sent me where he, he said he was worried about the amount of time I was spending doing these four-hour commutes. And he added up over the course of a year how many hours that would equate to. And then he said, that's the number of hours you're not spending with your family. And I forget what the figure was, but I remember, I remember reading it and being frightened. And I quit that job. It wasn't entirely because of Zach, but he was a big part of the reason I quit that job. And as a result, like I saw my kids, I saw my wife, I spent less time on trains, I was happier. Life got better, partly because of Zach. Then my family had a, a rough trot, which we're not entirely out of, but I was coming out of the back of that. And for the first time in a long time, I was looking to the future. And I can remember I was walking down the, the footpath near where we were living with my daughter who was chasing our dog and there was sunshine and I can remember looking to the future for the first time I got this call from my wife who'd taken our eldest daughter to the doctor to say she'd been sent to hospital and our eldest daughter had cancer oh my god yeah and it was just one of those moments where everything stopped and I can remember being on the phone because my wife was obviously in tears she could barely talk and she passed the phone to the doctor and I can remember my middle daughter stopped and was looking at me so she could hear everything I was saying. And I was trying to ask the doctor all the right questions without alarming my other daughter who I hadn't had a chance to explain things to. And then our eldest daughter, and I've spoken to her since and to her mum since, who is still my wife. <laughs> and we are happy for, for me and her to talk about this. She's since then gone through two years and counting of cancer treatment, and it's rough. How old is she, sorry? She's 12 now. Wow. She was nine at diagnosis, so three years now. Yeah. You know, she's had multiple rounds of chemo, multiple major surgery. She's had immunotherapy, radiotherapy, a lot of hospital. We've spent literally months in hospital since then, and we're dealing with all of that. And obviously there's some kind of existential fears because one of the things you get with cancer is you get a statistical probability of survival. And it was pretty much the first thing they told us. And so very quickly into becoming a parent of a kid with cancer, you're faced with this essential life and death thing that you're going to be holding for the rest of your life. And going through all of that, Zach's family were actually incredibly supportive. His mum was fantastic. She called me up and she was telling me, you know, you have to go and buy a pink crystal because pink crystals are good for healing and did it. And I put it underneath her pillow and every so often Glennis would say you had to take it out and wash it to wash away all that. And Zach, I'd write about this in, in letters to Zach and it was the same, like, you know, it wasn't the easiest stuff to talk about 
with your mates. Although I got better at it and I've got some very good mates who, who did talk to me, but I had this guy on the other side of the world who I could put it all in a letter and send it off and I wouldn't hear from him for weeks. And so the emotions weren't there, but the process of putting it in letters. And then when the letters came back from Zach, they were supportive, they were positive. And he had the courage to ask questions of me, which probably blokes having a beer in the pub wouldn't ask of each other. Like, all right, Dan, is, is, is the fact you're doing this because of the way you're feeling about that? And no one else was asking me those questions, but they were helpful for me just to process it all. So for an example, I got quite into running, like long distance running. And, part, and it was all at the time Poppy was going through this quite extreme treatment. And, you know, the distances got further and further and further. And so we were doing 20, 50, 100K runs. And it was quite obvious to most people that I was in some way trying to deal with what I was going through and maybe putting myself through a little discomfort as well as some kind of instinctive reaction. But Zach was the one who said, like, do you think the reason you're doing this is because of that? And I, it was easier to deal with that in a letter. It wasn't as confronting. So Zach helped me through all of that as well, and Zach's family did. And I don't know. Like, we're not... Poppy's still in treatment, but she's doing really well. Like, she was doing handstands on the beach last weekend. She's doing, <laughs> she's doing pretty well. Yeah. And one thing with cancer, like most people will know, will know at some point, someone in their family has cancer. Like, you never 100% know the outcome. So we may always live with that uncertainty, but we're pretty resilient now. But having that person who was completely unexpected for me to be able to open myself up to in this completely kind of non-confronting manner, like I needed that. Yeah, I must say some of the, the prison can have that effect on men in particular, I find. Like some of the deepest, most soulful men I've ever met have been to jail for pretty long stretches. They're, if they're that way inclined, there must be that possibility in jail. They, they must find people to talk to like that in jail because some guys come out like that and I don't think they go in like that. I don't know if Zach would have been that soulful as a 19-year-old. I don't know. but I don't, I don't, I don't, Honestly, I don't think so. No. Um, I think he'd say that. Yeah. Um, some of them come out pretty philosophical. Look, I've got this whole thing now about those people who have been through some adversity, like real adversity, it kind of makes them better people. I'm a better person for this and I've got a different perspective about things. Like, Well, I was thinking when he was saying to you, you never see your family, even yeah. at that early point, and I thought, well, if anyone can relate to that. Exactly. And the importance of that, it's Zach sitting in his, you know, bunk. I think it takes trauma to be able to sit with other people's trauma. You know how a lot of people will just change the topic whenever you bring up anything difficult they just like can't cope and will just change the subject yeah yeah but people who've lived through trauma can sit still and listen yeah i think that's a really good point actually and there's a level of understanding i, I struggle to kind of put this into words even for myself and i'll probably get it wrong and i'll probably say something offensive but i'll take a run at it so i've been a crime reporter for a decade or so now through my work i've talked to a lot of families of people who've lost someone and one of the things i've learned is that i can't understand how they're feeling 
and that it's often the worst thing for anyone to say to them is I understand how you must be feeling because of course we don't, we haven't lost a kid. But to be in a situation where I face this kind of threat to my child, I can't understand how these people feel, but I have the beginnings of an understanding. And I think there's an empathy as a result, or the, at least the beginning of an empathy. And I think I'm better at what I do for it. And I, I actually just think I'm a better person. I mean, I'd far rather we hadn't had to go through this, obviously. Mm. I'd still happily be the slightly less good version of myself that I was, but I am a better person. And my family's a better family. Like, we seize the moment a lot. And that's pretty good. And, and it goes back to what you're saying about people who've done long periods in prison. Like, that, I'm sure that you're right. There's a different perspective. But having lost so much and had to endure so much, you're going to, at the end of that, hopefully, and I know not everyone will be, but hopefully you can learn from that experience and you won't sweat the small things in life as much because you know what it's like to go without the big things. And I'm hoping that's where Zach is now. Yeah. So, so the book came out about, like I said, the week he got out of prison and I had a conversation with him a couple of days ago, but he said this about a week ago. He mentioned the fact that a bunch of people he knew has read the book. Like I sent some copies up for his family and stuff. And I think I said, have you read it? And he said, no, I haven't read it yet. And I said, well, don't because I've got a copy that I want to give to you. And so he's agreed not to read it. I'm going to fly up next month and I'm going to hand him a copy of the book, at which point he can read it if he wants to. And I just, it will be interesting to see what he makes of it, but it will be interesting for me to see what he's made of himself now, like to come out after that length of time in prison, facing everything he has. And I'm not saying he's perfect. I, I'm not defending what he did, but he's faced a lot of adversity and he's got a lot of adversity still to go. He's still a young man. He is, yeah. But he's had, you know, that period of your life through your 20s where you kind of work out who you are, like that's when you, you make all your big mistakes and you make your big kind of decisions. Like that's all gone. But I, he said to me last time I saw him in prison, he said, like, what's, how's, how are you going to end the book? And I said, well, I reckon I said, the last chapter is really the one you've got right, which is also the hardest chapter, which is you come out of prison, you've then got to build a life. Like, that's hard. And that is what he's just at the beginning of now. So it will be interesting for me to see how he's going with that and see what kind of a man he is. But I'm really looking forward to it. Which is odd, because I am literally going to go and see a convicted murderer. But I, I am, I really want to see him. Some of my best friends are convicted murderers, mate. <laughs> it's going to be fine. <laughs> Thank you to our guest today, Dan Box, whose book, The Man Who Wasn't There, is available now. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.